I do remember that when they were examining Will, they brought me into another room and said, we're gonna need to give him some medication. We're gonna need to probably keep him overnight, but you can see him tomorrow morning and get him. And I said, okay. And so they left me with a stack of papers and they like X'd all the places I need to sign. And I remember thinking I wanted the paperwork because I had never signed my new last name. And so I just remember sitting there and thinking, this is how I'm writing my new last name. I'm committing my husband to a psych ward on our honeymoon. I'm John Frechette, and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about a moment in their career where they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. For Tiffany Fisher, there was something special about that boy named Will Acuff. Perhaps it was his charisma that made Will the center of attention in almost every room he walked into. Maybe it was his talent as one of the co-frontmen for the ascending alt-country band Spencer Acuff. Or perhaps it was Will's unwavering and deep relationship to God that looked to be the model example of a good Christian, the son of a pastor from North Carolina. Whatever the reason, Tiffany, a dedicated artist with dreams of making it as a writer, knew that after a few hours of conversation, this was the man she was going to marry. But what Tiffany did not realize at the time was that the promise in sickness and in health would come to test her marriage only hours after it started. In this episode, both Will and Tiffany speak to the power of love, faith, and forgiveness. Look back at nearly two decades of growth, speak to the challenges of mental illness and recovery, and share their mission of learning from their own suffering to make a significant and sizable impact for their fellow community members in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, here's the Acuffs with their story. In college, I lived off campus with seven other girls and they were all young life leaders, which is like a Christian ministry to high school students, okay? My next door neighbor happened to be Will's little brother, Bennett. Bennett lived in a house with several other guys and they were like the party house. And so they would throw these amazing parties and he was like, you gotta come see my brother's Christian band. And I was like, what? And so he guides me into the living room and there is the flowing <coughs> luscious locks, Will Acuff, on a guitar, singing John Mayer's Your Body is a Wonderland. And this is where we dispute. I was not singing. You were John. totally singing that song. No, we never covered that song. For some reason, our memories developed. Um, yeah, I remember here. this very, very well. And so not only was he singing that, so I get pushed to the front and I'm literally like standing like right next to him. So he's playing this guitar riff or whatever and he leans away from the microphone. And he's, hey, nice t-shirt. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> we go to church the next morning and we go to this big church in Chapel Hill, had been going there all through college. Like and a couple thousand people kind of church. All of a sudden the pastor's up there. Now we're going to have some special music from the African mission trip. 
and this jumbo screen like comes down and all of a sudden it's like pictures of Will and he is on the stage playing the piano and singing this original song he wrote. And all of my roommates are like, isn't that the guy you met last night? And I was like, yes. I could not have planned a better A-game. <laughs> Mysterious rock and roll guy by night, tender-hearted man of the people by Sunday morning. So all of them were like, oh my gosh, you have to go talk to him after the church. And there is a single file line of girls waiting to talk to him. I don't remember this <laughs> and part, I was to like, be fair. I am not going to stand in line to like talk to this guy. And so I waited for the line to disappear. And then I found him. And I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me from last night. I'm your brother's neighbor. I'm Tiffany. And he's like, okay, cool. And like leaves. And I was like, oh, okay. And so that happened several Sundays. She reintroduced herself to me week after week. And I was like, yeah, hey. He still wasn't acting for my number. So I was like, what are you doing? So after that, I ended up going to a random battle of the bands. And of course, his band was there. I go to introduce myself to him again. At this point, I've introduced myself like five or six times. And he is like, hey, do you want to go grab a drink? And I was like, sure because all the other bands had to play. And so he takes me to this bar and he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't, I don't drink. It was so scandalous, y'all. But for me, the conversation was so good that I felt this connection that I was like, wow, this is it. At that time... You know, Cat's Cradle, kind of a renowned Ooh, yes. um, music spot in Chapel Hill. We were able to like sell out Cat's Cradle when we played. I personally could make thirty to $40,000 a year where we're playing three or four shows a week. Yes. And we were at that band level where if lightning strikes in the exact right way, they could make it, you know what I mean? But we were very much so like in the regional bubble. You know, if some big name was coming to town, we would open for them that night. Like we opened for Wilco once in Durham. Anybody, honestly, who devotes themselves to a creative path, almost in whatever category, if you do it long enough and you have some talent and opportunity, you will be famous adjacent. It is not the same thing (laughs) as making it. I decided that it just wasn't going to work for us to try to get married if we didn't live in the same city for a little bit while I wasn't in college. And so I ended up moving back to North Carolina and wanted to be writing, but just didn't have the portfolio really yet. And so I took a job at an alt weekly because I loved the environment. And so that was a full-time job with benefits, which I knew if he was quitting his job, one of us needed to have that. But I also wanted to just say that when we got engaged, I was sat down with several of the band members and told that not only was I marrying Will, but I was also marrying into the band. You know, I didn't get any rings from them, but I was in. I totally believed in their music and Will. And I can remember having a conversation with my sister who was 10 years older than me and just so worried about our future. (laughs) She was like, how are you guys going to eat? Where are you going to live? What You're just going to go out on the road? And, and I was like, you know, wash dishes in some bar kitchen if I need to. Like, we'll figure it out. And she was just horrified. <laughs> if I could travel back in time and punch old me in the throat, <laughs> yeah. that'd be like the first... But the reality is that we, this is really the future that we, you know, wanted and planned for ourselves. This is what it was going to be. We were wrong. <laughs> 
That whole summer was really intense and stressful because the band, we were recording our second album at that point, and we were subletting a house with no furniture, all sleeping on air mattresses in the studio 24-7, not eating well, while also planning this... Drinking a lot. Wedding, yeah, drinking too much. Drinking as like a stress cope mechanism, you know, for the first time. And we were apart from each other like the whole summer, basically. And then leading up to the wedding, the week of, like four out of the five, like most stressful things that can happen in a developed country, you know, happened in one week. A kid in the youth group that I helped out with, this 18-year-old girl, she died in a car wreck. Um, actually, her funeral was the day of our wedding. So some of the people didn't get to make the wedding because of the funeral. Mm-hmm. I quit my job. I left that job to pursue music full time. We moved into the place that was going to be like our place. And then we got married. I mostly remember being distracted by all the things that had just happened and telling myself, be present and feeling a strong sense of excitement, like now we can begin. We caught a flight that next day to New Orleans. So we go to get on the plane and we had never flown together before. And so flying is an intense experience. People do it differently. While we were on the flight, Will kind of leans over to me and he was like, hey, do you see the angels on the wings? And I was like, excuse me? Because in our everyday life, there wasn't a lot of talk of angels. There was not any talk of angels. And so this was a new thing for us. And I was like, what? And so he was like, there are angels on the wings. And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, wow, he really is scared to fly or something. He needs to like get through this. I didn't sleep on Saturday night. I didn't know that. Tiffany didn't know that. (laughs) The buddings of a first manic episode were happening without the language or mental health awareness to understand that. And again, I think we've come a long way in the almost 17 years since this happened um, in terms of mental health awareness. But at the time, like no context for, you know, hey, it's really weird that I couldn't sleep all night long and I'm feeling this amped. And at that time, I wasn't actually seeing any angels. I was terrified of flying and I was praying about it very vividly and kind of imaginatively and trying to like share that experience with Tiff. And I was thinking, we are now hours into our marriage, and I just found out my husband flies with angels. You know, that was that was new information for me. Before we left, we raided all of our wedding gifts and took all of the cash out of all of the cards. And so we took all of that with us. For, like, spending money. Yeah, it was so fun. So we had all that cash with us. And so... We check in at the hotel and then Will says he wanted to go take a walk by himself. And he was acting very like protective of me. And it was at night. And so I like got into the room and Will disappeared. And at this point, I hadn't slept. It's what would have been night two of no sleep Sunday night. And I started walking around downtown New Orleans at night, just giving money away, giving our our honeymoon money away. (laughs) Specifically, I kept not sleeping. We would do whatever we were doing that day. He would lay down with me like he was going to sleep. 
And again, not like I'm trying to trick you, but like I would genuinely try to read myself to sleep mm -hmm. and then still be amped and end up like going downstairs where they had a piano in the lobby of the hotel and trying to play it loudly. We had decided to walk around downtown and visit a couple of the famous restaurants and shops and museums and things like that. And I just noticed that Will was like on a, a more spiritual plane than we had ever talked about before. Like I was um, talking in mystical kind of stuff. Yes. What people who've never experienced this don't realize is that you aren't disconnected to the events that are happening around you, but rather you're grabbing each one of them and weaving them into a very elaborate story, a different narrative than others are experiencing. And it's it gets to the point where I remember like five days of not sleeping, like I could touch like the bedspread at the hotel and be like this sensation, sensory. you know, like your sensory stuff starts breaking down. And I have to be honest, I was at a point where I was deeply insecure in my relationship with Will. And so I was more focused on pleasing him and making sure he felt good about marrying me than I was about what is going on here. So what could have been some very early signs and flags, I was not as in tune to because I was focusing on myself. But there were enough things at that point that I was starting to get a little like concerned. Is he mm -hmm. trying to get out of this marriage? Does he feel like he made a mistake and is now saying crazy stuff to like get out of this thing? And so it wasn't until I got a phone call from his parents at the hotel and Will wasn't in the room and we're like, Tiffany, are you okay? And I was like, yes. And she was like, is Will okay? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, he's been calling us and calling other people and just saying some really strange things. We just wanted to check on you guys. And for me, that was like this just veil was lifted. And it was like, somebody is validating just this weirdness. And no, we are not okay. Something is definitely going on right now. And they were like, come home, pack your stuff immediately, go to the airport and come home. And I was like, yes, we will. I just, I almost needed that permission at that point to be like, yeah, this isn't right. I just said, we're going home. And it was almost, the way I describe it now, it was almost like a light switch just went boop. And he just like went like robotic almost. He was like, tell me what to do. And from my side, I had lost the ability to do complicated executive functioning stuff. And so Tiffany saying we're leaving felt like a lifeline. Whereas I like just emotionally detached and just said, we are going to get through this. Thank God we could not get on a plane because I could have been shot by an air marshal yeah. right? in mid psychosis. We end up in a Holiday Inn near the airport and a family member called the police. The thing I remember most at that point is I was trying to lay in bed and completely out of sorts and uncomfortable and a cop shining his flashlight like inches from my face and screaming at me about what drugs I was taking. And Tiffany then like getting in the cop's face, don't you touch him, he's not on anything. You know, and this like screaming match is going on. And at that point, I was now in a full panic attack on top of everything else. Your heart feels like it's gonna beat through your chest. It is extremely painful. As they're dragging me to an ambulance, I'm begging them to shock my chest with the paddles. Like I needed something to stop this pain. Yeah. 
And then they bring us to the emergency room. So if you think like New Orleans is known for being an intense place, the emergency room at New Orleans is the next level up. And then by the end of that night, I was committed into the psych ward off the ER, like the top of the mountain of intensity. And he was so disconnected at that point in his own narrative that I was really worried he didn't understand that I was about to leave him and that... And I did not. And he did not. And I hugged him and I was crying at that point. I was really scared, not for me, but for him of what is about to happen. What is about to happen for him? They reassured me that I could see him the next morning. And so I signed off, but it ended up being that the next day I called and they were like, oh, visiting hours aren't until like two or three days away. And I was like, what? I was back in that hotel by myself where it all went down. And I can remember Will's mom was on the way and I called my best friend who had just gotten married and tried to tell her that I was still in New Orleans, I was in a hotel, and I had just checked Will into the hospital. And she was like, what? And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. And I was terrified to call my parents. I didn't at that point, because I didn't know what I'd even say. The next day, I was still very much in psychosis, but I had slept finally. All the things I was experiencing, I just wove into a new story. You know, there were two halves to the psych ward. I was in the side where it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, New Orleans ER style. When Libby and I went to visit, Will was, he couldn't walk by himself. He was so drugged and they put us in this little room and he was like, are we married now? And I was like, yes, that happened. But then he wanted to dance. And so we slow danced in that really tiny room in the psych ward. And then the nurse came back and said we could go to all of the pharmacies in New Orleans and try to find this medication to get him to go home. And Libby and I were, were on a mission. And yeah. We did. We came home to Chapel Hill and Will was still in psychosis yeah. for about a week and a half, 11 days. There was a lot of trying to figure out how do we move forward in this? And my but, dad asking you, you know, my dad, who was one of the two pastors who performed the ceremony, asking her, do you need to annul this? No, I was in the kitchen having breakfast and he came down and said, are you wanting to get an annulment? And I said, are you kidding me? I'm just worried that it didn't count. Was he crazy when he said his vows? Like, does are we even married right now? And so I was like, no, I'm not trying to get out of this. I want to know, like, is it real? And then I remember Tiffany came home one day and I just asked her, how long have I been gone? It was just like, I knew the minute he looked in my eyes and said, how long have I been gone? I was like, oh, he's back. He's back now. My first set of feelings were like, wow, I can't believe all that happened. How quickly can we get back to normal? And the first thing we did was go see a doctor at UNC. Yes. And that was the beginning of the worst part. By that point, the drugs, what they had done to me and what they're designed to do is top off your highs and fill in your lows. 
and try to put you in a balanced middle, right? Now, that can be super helpful and important depending on what's going on in your life. But if you're overprescribed those or the doctors haven't quite figured out what's going on, it can basically take your life from I'm seeing in color to now I'm seeing in grayscale emotionally. I, I didn't have the ability, for instance, to be like empathetic with Tiffany at all. I couldn't understand if something made her happy, I didn't get it. Something made her sad, I didn't get it. Six months in, I was misdiagnosed and basically we were told, this is your life now. The band fell apart. The band fell apart in part because, and God bless him, we've had these hard conversations later in life. But at the time, this was deeply wounding. He basically took me on a walk like six months after this happened and said, hey, like, I can't trust my career to you anymore. I remember the time being like, what the F? We're hardly into knowing what's happening and the funkiness of like the ambition with creative endeavors, right? Mm -hmm. Mixed with the, your heart's on the line and everything you're doing. That all got so heartbreaking. I was so bitter. I was so bitter from the people that had sat me down and said, you're marrying this band now, that they would just be so quick to leave us. Yeah, I would say our young Christian, Christian friend, friend group. group had not been around suffering like this and didn't know how to walk with us in it. And so just ghosted to a large degree. Not everybody, obviously, but the, the distinct feeling was like, wow, nobody is with us right now. Uh, um, we should also clarify our young white Christian. Yeah, yeah. Our young white Christian friend. Everybody else was on the, we just finished college and our careers and our dreams yeah. are really taking shape. Oh, and Tiffany is living the happily ever after that we're waiting for. And it was not. It was like everything we had built our life upon or thought we were building our life upon was torn down and the earth was salted. About a year after all this, Tiffany and I were like, hey, we've got to get out of Chapel Hill. We've got to get out of this scene. The Old Testament term is leave and cleave, right? Like we're going to become our own new entity. And so we were on our way to move to New York. And then instead, we went to Charleston for our one year, one anniversary, year anniversary. And we loved it. And it was like affordable yeah. and it was sunny. So we moved there, not knowing anybody, really with the idea of we will make it or we will get divorced here. I was also suicidal at that point because I could not wrap my head around the fact that I couldn't divorce well, but I didn't know how to live in this new reality. Yeah. And it was so lonely. I just didn't know what to do. I had had a trip after college led by an epidemiologist from UNC and his wife was a general practitioner where we read books on doctrine and financial policy that affects sub-Saharan Africa, like linking all these really complicated things that started to put together the framework that say we live out of now. And I didn't know at the time how radical that was to decenter yourself in that way. But that trip destroyed my worldview. I didn't know poverty like that even existed. So when I met Tiffany, I was in the beginning stages of starting to grapple with a worldview that had been destroyed and try to understand which pieces I would hold on to and which pieces I needed to throw away. And that honestly laid the groundwork for a lot of the stress and everything else that was going on leading right up to our marriage. Like it was at that point that I started drinking more. It was at that point, like I'm writing sad bastard guitar songs and reading too much Kerouac and wrestling with these bigger theological ideas. And I say all that to say in Charleston, we were still in that, who are we? We were already in a who are we faith-wise place, but now we're in a 
who are we with are this you? psychosis? Who are you? With who this am I? diagnosis. And we met this, I, I had to have a psychiatrist there. And he was like, hey, this story doesn't make sense. This diagnosis doesn't make sense. I think this is a one-time thing. And the only way we're going to find out is if we take you off of medicine and see what happens. Tiffany's worst nightmare, right? Worst. And I'm like, you want me to go back to that place with you? No. I don't even know if I want to be in this place with you. Yeah. And what happened was I come out of the meds and I remember walking home from work one day in beautiful downtown Charleston, South Carolina, mm. and suddenly being joyful and sad and weeping all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was the moment where it felt like the color came back. And around that same time, God consistently put people in our lives somebody that my dad knew when he was a pastor in Boston who just happened to be on vacation in Charleston. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife were experts at divorce care. Mm -hmm. And they saw us in need. And that night we're like, we want to take you to the fanciest restaurant in Charleston. And they just listened to our story and encouraged us. Like a million little things like that happened. Not a coincidence in yeah. my book. <laughs> yeah, like, That was the Lord redeeming our marriage and keeping us together. That started to put the like framework back together in a new way, because we had six months of falling back in love. And I should say at the time too, we had one couple that we really got to know well. Those friends, they said, hey, we're moving to Nashville. Would you guys consider moving to Nashville just for community sake? And we decided, yeah, why not? Be a fresh start. But we realized through our own suffering that we didn't have a theology of suffering. We realized through examining our own kind of past that we didn't have a theology of love of neighbor. So when we landed in Nashville, that was the only thing spiritually like we were anchoring to. Was like, what is it going to look like for us to love neighbor as self? If that's what Jesus was about, we want to be about that. And so we ended up moving into a low income neighborhood on purpose to wrestle with those questions. Not as saviors who had it figured out. Yeah, Because we not definitely did not. No. We, but we felt like these are our people who understand. They understand what it means to live in a world where God is not a magic genie, where you don't just say, throw up these prayers and then you get what you want. In my experience, like especially at that time, the Black community knew that that was a false gospel. And that was so attractive to me. For a long time, I feel like I lived waiting for the other shoe to drop. I didn't want to give myself into the hope that maybe this really is a fresh start. It was like I was constantly guarded with him. I didn't want to fall back in love with him in case he left me again. It, it just, it took a long time, a lot of therapy to let him back in and join him in this new life and adventure. But I would say too, we were both trying to answer the question of what does this look like to love neighbor as self in our oh, own ways? Yeah, like, I had to do work that had integrity, that held my values, that gave me life every single day, regardless of the paycheck. Like I knew after what we'd been through, that's how I would be spending my days. And the faith, I wrestled with that all the time. How could you have let this happen? Are you going to do this again? Are you really a good God? Do you really love us? What about all the people who say they love you that have hurt me? and how mm -hmm. they've responded to this. What am I supposed to do with that? The first thing we did was to go to our local rec center around the corner from our house and say, what could we do together? Yeah, and I do want to paint a picture here though. This was in the midst of a really popular 
urban church planning that happened and gentrification was happening. It was a buzzword and white people were showing up in black spaces and <laughs> centering themselves. Yeah, the white, the white savior kind of archetypal but, stuff. But we were doing this in the midst of that. So you could easily look at us and assume, you know, we're complicit, we're part of this, but that was never our intention. And we met with the rec center staff and just said, what can we be doing together? And through dialogue, the first thing they wanted to do was take Tiffany's job training that she was doing behind bars and do it in the neighborhood for free. Nashville has the highest incarceration rate per capita in the United States. And so our neighborhood has a high recidivism rate. And actually, as people were transitioning out of prison, like they were becoming our actual neighbors. So Tiffany had this established relationship. So we were doing organic things at the time too, like toys on the front porch, a free library in the front yard. We would recreate the NBA playoffs on Xbox One for teenagers in the neighborhood <laughs> and offer like a $50 first prize. Like you want to get some focused teenagers. That's a great way to do it. But programming wise, that was the first thing we did. And it went from five to 10 to 15 to 20 people by the end of that first night. And I'll never forget the assistant director of that rec center who would later tell me, I was like, yeah, you'll be gone in a second. I've seen so many white people just like you. Mm -hmm. After that first month as relationship was building, she was like, can y'all just keep coming back? And then she's taken Tiffany out for drinks, you know, with her and her girlfriends. And then when we adopted our son out of Memphis, her grandkids' clothes were our son's first hand-me-downs. And my point in bringing that up is the relationship thing that we were hoping for and longing for was starting to happen. And it was around 2011 that we started planning and praying, what would it look like to start our own nonprofit? We are setting up for our facilitator training for Corner to Corner, and we are so excited! So excited! Yeah, so we started Corner to Corner way back in 2011 as a faith-based nonprofit that would exist to see neighbors flourish on their own terms. So as Corner to Corner was beginning to take shape, it really started from the baseline of just living in the community and showing up as learners. Like we did not have a lot of answers or solutions or anything like that, but really we're trying to move in with what I would describe as cultural humility. But obviously you don't know what you don't know. And so I, when I think back, man, there are so many times where I said or did the wrong thing, or as we were building cross-cultural relationships, I put my foot in my mouth. And it's one thing to read books. It's another thing to actually live with a community. And so, what was beautiful about our neighborhood was so often neighbors would gently and lovingly correct, admonish, teach. You know, and Tiffany and I were being formed in a way where humility was becoming a lived experience rather than just like an intellectual value. But I think that came through learning a lot of lessons the like awkward way. Relationships were also the one thing I think that I realized in what we went through that you couldn't fake. And so for me, it was like, that was the ultimate. I didn't want to just do volunteer work. We needed relationships. And so our tagline for Corner was connect, invest, grow. And that was because anybody that has anything to do with our organization, it's very important to me that they understand that this is a mutual relationship. So by 2016, we both went full time. Where we're at now is we focus a lot on economic equity and educational equity. On the economic side, when the economy was really booming in Nashville, our former offender neighbors didn't need our help getting bad jobs anymore at $9 an hour, but the city was getting more expensive and our neighbors had half of what they needed to make it in a given month. And so 
In 2016, we licensed a nationwide curriculum for underestimated entrepreneurial training, right? Like meaning people who are normally locked out, giving them the tools to plan, start and launch something. And so we started with one cohort in the fall of 2016. As of today, we have graduated 348 entrepreneurs and that program by itself last year put $8 million back into the neighborhood economy. Two out of three kids in Nashville are not reading at grade level, a literacy crisis. And when you consider that literacy is the biggest educational predictor of whether a kid will get caught up in the school to prison pipeline, and Nashville has the number one incarceration rate oh. per capita, we've built this conveyor belt, yeah. right? And so we launched creative programming like Script to Screen, which helps kids fall in love with reading through their love of movies. They watch Black Panther, read the script at the same time, have that aha moment that what's on the screen started on the page. And then they work in small groups to write their own script while we bring in videographers and sound and lighting people to teach them the technical side. And then they make their own short movies. And then we do a red carpet premiere where they're honored as creators. And so what we're trying to do with a lot of our programming and the way we celebrate it and draw attention to it is no pity stories. None. We've had way too much of that. What we need to see are these beautiful agency stories, mm -hmm. these beautiful creative stories, these beautiful stories of neighbors who are putting the wind in their own sails through their own creative ideas. My faith doesn't allow for coincidences. It's almost like I can see this thread that the Lord has woven throughout my life and not to sound like Will in the psych ward, but things were connected. When I look back at it now at 41 years old, I think, man, those two poor kids oh my gosh. who were going through something tragic far from home and didn't know what it was. And at the time, in the immediate aftermath of it, I think we both dealt with that trauma and also that self-condemnation. And at this point, I look back with a lot more grace. And even like a couple of years after this, we could look back and say, thank you. And I mean that from a spiritual standpoint. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave me in the place where my wife would describe me as an ego monster. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thank you for doing the things and bringing me to the scars in my life that would help me to be a human that could really like love their neighbor. So I, I look at those things as overlapped. Hurt like hell was <laughs> super necessary. Would not recommend. If you had asked us five, 10 years ago, you know, what we thought it would be like, mm -hmm. nobody would know about 2020. 2021. But I'm just saying in terms of our life, never would I have come up with this yeah. of where we are and who we are and that. So yeah. it's an adventure. We're really looking forward to the next chapter. Corner to Corner, the nonprofit Tiffany and Will founded, continues its mission of finding creative ways to help the Nashville community. As of today, the organization has launched over 500 black entrepreneurs and in 2021 had a $13 million neighborhood economic impact. More about their mission and programs can be found at cornertocorner.org. As planned, Will recently stepped down as the group's executive director, but he and Tiffany continue to play a significant role in its day-to-day -day operations and development. Concurrently, Tiffany is writing her first book while she and Will raise their two children, Raylan and Penelope. Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Spencer Acuff. Artwork by Tim Ahern. Find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com. And if you like what you heard today, 
consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening.